0: So as we journey through the book of Acts this year, when one of the apostles goes to a new place and to a new church, we've been taking time to look at some of the letters that were written to those people, in those places where the apostles have traveled. Most recently in Acts, we looked at Corinth. Paul was in Corinth ministering to the Corinthians, and last week Jay preached on 1 Corinthians. This week, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians, both letters written to the church there. So if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to take that out and open to 2 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, they are in the corners of the room, in the back and in the front, and I encourage you to grab one if you don't have one, so you can follow along with us as we read it and study it this morning together. The tone of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are very different, quite different, in fact. 1 Corinthians, if you remember from last week, included a lot of correction, a lot about Ways that this church was struggling with sin and disobedience, and Paul gave strong correction to them, because he loves them. But the Second Corinthians includes a little bit of that throughout the letter, but it's primarily about God's work in Paul and through Paul to this Corinthian church there, and then how that work that God was doing in Paul and through Paul would affect their lives and their worship of Jesus. There's more tenderness in Paul's tone in this letter. Way less correction about sin. Evidently, leaders had arrived in the city of Corinth, so-called super apostles, how's that for a title? Super apostles, who managed to dupe a number of the Corinthians into believing that they were superior to Paul and that their authority was greater than Paul, that somehow he wasn't qualified for the apostolic ministry that he had been doing among them. This letter was written to address that. That's the large overarching context of this. Like all of Scripture, this letter opens up and describes reality for us in a way that we could not have imagined or intuited on our own apart from him doing that for us and telling us about who he is. No amount of scientific explanation or experimentation, no amount of philosophical musing, no amount of personal experience will enable us to know Him and experience Him in reality the way that His Word does. It is a gift to us. God in His love chose to reveal Himself to us so that we could know Him as He really is and peel back layers of reality so that we could know what is truly going on in the world around us that we couldn't have just come up with on our own. We come to the Word to receive from Him, to hear from Him, and then to respond relationally to His work in us. We expect this morning that our lives are going to be changed as we hear us. Hear Him. There are glorious, earth shaking truths in this letter. I'm excited to dig in. It's 13 chapters long, so I'm going to talk really fast. No, I'm not. Um, Each chapter, each of those 13 chapters, deserves at least a sermon, probably multiple per chapter. This morning, we're going to do a flyover a high-level overview of this book, I want to boil all 13 chapters down to one main truth, and then I want to look at one main theme that that truth then applies to in this letter that Paul weaves throughout it. Over and over again, he teaches this truth or he implies it with how he leads them into each theme that unfolds throughout this letter. A truth that gets at the very core of what it means to be a fully alive human being, thriving in the world, God made and here's that truth Christ is our constant reference point he is always central we are called to live our lives in him and through him and for him he is the one that we are meant to look to in order to make sense of the particular life circumstances that we find ourselves in whether those circumstances are pleasant and satisfying or whether those circumstances are deeply challenging and sorrowful He is how we evaluate whether we are adequate to fulfill what God calls us into on any given day. He is how we evaluate what do we do with the money we have and the possessions that we have. He changes how we view those things. Every need we have and every good and beautiful way that we're called to live in Him will find their source and sufficiency in Him. His example and His power are more than sufficient for every need that we have. So if you're in your Bible right now, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we can see this truth that Christ is to be our constant and our sole reference point immediately as Paul starts this letter. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Right away, Paul starts by reminding them of who God is God and God revealed in Christ is the reference point by which their lives were to be built and interpreted. Who is he? What is he like? In this section of the letter, at least, Paul wanted to remind them and make sure that they remembered that he's the Father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. And like the Corinthians, we also need to prioritize keeping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before us. Starting with who God is and what is God like, that's a habit that we learn. It's not necessarily necessarily natural for us to be thinking throughout our day about who God is and what he's doing in that moment, but it's a habit that we can learn as we follow Jesus as his apprentices and as his spirit renovates our hearts. It's all too easy, at least for me, to start with some other reference point as I think about my life, my discomfort or my circumstances, or other people. But Jesus intends for us to start with him. For example, you find yourself stressed and a bit anxious because you're running late for an important appointment. I'm sure everyone has felt that at some point in their lives. How do you respond? Where do you start? By talking to yourself about what you could have done differently I should have left earlier. I should have taken a different route. Or maybe you start with what others did to contribute to your tardiness. That's an easy place to go. If only the kids had gotten up earlier, I wouldn't be running late. Or how about the weather? That's a reality. Or traffic. Why in the world are all these other people on the road right now? All of those would be very normal places, to start and focus on in that situation. And all of those could have been an important ingredient to running late, but none of those factors is as important as who God is and what God is doing in that moment, even the moment of stress and anxiety about running late. While that situation can be pretty intense and stressful, God intends for it to be something that draws us more deeply into him Instead of an internal monologue that I find all too easy to engage in, we can move to Christ being the reference point and a dialogue happening with Him. So instead of venting my frustration internally and playing a video in my head about how things are going or how they could have gone differently, I can go to Him immediately in that moment, whether it's anxiety or fear, or anger, or frustration, whatever it is, we can in that moment go to him and tell him what's going on and receive his provision for us in that moment. Whenever we can shift from this internal monologue that we can engage in to a dialogue with him, we are headed in the right direction. So when we start with God and who he is, we start with the one who made us and who holds us in his hands and who works good in our lives all the time. He never stops doing that. Another way of saying this, Christ is our constant reference point, is the short three-word phrase, yes, but God. Every circumstance can be filtered through the truth. Yes, but God. Yes, the circumstance is real, and the circumstance can be really challenging and sad and broken, but God is aware and unsurprised and involved. In this situation, that I, the example I gave, which is trivial really, but it's like, yes, I'm late, I'm stressed, and nothing is cooperating to get me there on time. But God is in control and he is taking care of me right now. He is always purposeful and never flippant about our sadness or any of the suffering that we go into. He is with us through both the joys and the sorrows of our life. If you want to grow as people who more instinctively and naturally and habitually set our minds upon Him in those moments, it's important that every day we're taking time to focus on Him. Every day we're taking time to set our attention on Him. And the more we do that, and the more we get used to doing that, to being attuned to Him, the more readily we will be able to do that in a challenging and sad and heartbreaking situation if we're not practicing that when things are kind of normal it's challenging to do that when things go more difficult and more intense so i would encourage and recommend that practice to you an older follower of jesus told me years ago that i needed to every day adjust myself to the reality that i'm living in christ's presence Every day, adjust yourself to the reality that you're living in Christ's presence. And for me, that daily adjustment of mind and of heart is crucial if I'm going to live in him the way we're going to read about this morning. Paul weaves this main truth of the constant reference point of Christ and the centrality of Christ throughout this letter, and especially with the one theme we're going to look at this morning, the theme of human weakness and God's strength. The theme of power and strength versus weakness—it's woven throughout First Corinthians and Second Corinthians over and over again. Jay read one of the verses last week from 1 Corinthians, verse uh, 1 Corinthians four, verse twenty, says, "For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. The kingdom of God is not about just talking; it is about power and reality." And understanding that power in reality is how we get, and how we get to enjoy it and live in it is a big part of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. It's what he teaches us. Think for a minute about a powerful person. What does a person of strength or power look like in your mind? What qualities are typically attached to that person? Independence? Wealth, self confidence, maybe competence in an area, the ability to set goals and then push through obstacles and challenges to achieve those goals, influence. It's important to think about what comes to our mind when we think of a powerful person because our mind and our thought processes are very automatic. They're made up of ideas and images that are like just built into us. So we think power. Maybe one of those words comes to mind. But living in Christ's presence and coming to his word, we can peel back some of those layers and find, are those the qualities of a truly powerful person? Or is that just the way things appear to be? See, these super apostles that arrived, they said that Paul lacked those qualities, which is why they were here and he was here. He wasn't a good speaker, evidently, in their mind. They had more knowledge than him. They looked better than him. They looked more powerful, and he looked weak. And so often throughout this letter, he's addressing how that isn't actually the truth. What appears to be is not always the way things really are. I want to look at chapter 1 and continue to read. I'm going to start again in verse 3 just to set the context. Follow along, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, though so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too." If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So right out of the gate in this letter, Paul's focus is on his sufferings and his afflictions. And the same sufferings that the Corinthians were walking through, it was very acute and intense suffering. Intense for Paul. We'll continue on. Look at verse eight. How Paul describes it. He says, "For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death." But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It's a powerful passage. Paul had suffered to the point of thinking, I'm not going to make it through this. I've received a death sentence, but God delivered him. And not only did God deliver him, but God personally and tangibly brought him comfort. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort actually comforted Paul and he received that from him and experienced it and he knew that as he received comfort it wasn't just for him but it was for those around him as well the Corinthians for example that personal and tangible comfort was meant to be then given to others around him he says it very clearly he says so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction How would all of this, though, these sufferings and afflictions be a threat or be used to say that Paul shouldn't be an apostle, that he was somehow not worthy and diminish his ministry? Well, perhaps there were some who said, if God had chosen Paul to serve him as an apostle, he wouldn't be experiencing this level of affliction and suffering. If God were really for Paul's ministry, wouldn't God prevent such intense suffering? Paul's answer to that is, again, fixed on that truth, that Christ is our context always. His attention moves immediately to Jesus. Look at verse 5 again. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. The suffering that Paul and his team and the Corinthians were enduring was identified with Christ's suffering on the cross. Like Christ suffered, Paul suffered, and then so would the Corinthians suffer. And in that way, they were very uniquely imitating their Lord. Was Christ's suffering and death a sign of weakness? Was his suffering and death a sign that God really wasn't with him, and that maybe he wasn't really the Messiah? No. No. On the contrary, his suffering and death on the cross was the ultimate act of obedience, of giving his life for all of us, of resting in God's strength to the point of death. It is the example, Christ's death on the cross, of the strength of weakness. And like Christ's suffering, and death led to comfort and salvation for us, he suffered and we are comforted and we are given life. Paul too says, and he was convinced, that his own afflictions would be similar for the Corinthians for their salvation and for their comfort. Now, obviously different than Christ's, but as he suffered, they would get to know who Jesus was. And as they got to know who Jesus was, they would find salvation and comfort in him. Suffering for Paul led to ever greater and deeper experiences of Christ. And that would then overflow into the ministry he had among the Corinthians. The promise was that the Corinthians too would receive that abundant comfort from the God of all comfort. God used that suffering in Paul's life and ministry very purposely. He never wastes our suffering. Look again at verse 9 to see what he did with it. It says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That is the strength of weakness right there. Paul was at the end of his rope. He was totally undone as a human being. He had nothing left to do and he was at the point of despair. Yet it was at that very moment and during that suffering that led him to the strength of learning how to rely on God in the midst of his weakness and despair. It was in that moment, God's purpose in that suffering was that he would increasingly depend and rely upon him and experience what true strength as a human being looks like, dependence, and that Paul would turn away more and more from independence from Christ, which turned out to be weakness for him. As Paul clung to Jesus this way, Jesus would be honored, Jesus would be worshiped, and Jesus' power would be displayed in Paul's life. So that's the first example. I have two more. One in chapter 4. If you turn over to chapter 4 with me. Another example of the strength of weakness. Again, as we read this, keep in mind this larger context of people who came in saying they were the super apostles, more authority, more talent, more skill than Paul, eloquent in speech. So as we read this, have that in mind, starting in verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Immediately again, as Paul answers these these people who come, he puts the focus on Jesus He is to be our constant reference point. Paul's proclamation was not about himself. It wasn't about his own abilities or his own greatness. Instead, it was Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul positioned himself as the servant of the people for Jesus' name and constantly proclaimed that Jesus was Lord. He wanted the gospel to be proclaimed. He wanted more and more people to be reconciled to God through Jesus And he doesn't shy away from talking about his own afflictions and his own struggles in the midst of that. Again, he describes suffering as the catalyst of the comfort in life that he would receive from Jesus. But verse 7 in this section is the key verse. Look at verse 7 again. It says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The treasure here is the gospel of Jesus. It's a treasure of infinite worth. Paul, as an apostle, has this treasure and seeks to spread it and give it to anyone who will receive it. But Paul, as an apostle, is like a jar of clay. Fragile, disposable, unimpressive, and, of course, weak. And that's the point. The mission that Paul is on is not about Paul, but about the treasure, the gospel of Jesus. No one is meant to be focused on the jar of clay, but on the treasure that the jar holds. Paul's fragility and weakness were meant to make it clear that God is the one who was at work as the gospel spread, and God was at work as Paul ministered among the people. Human weakness, again, is actually strength. And the very thing that God uses to clearly, clearly display his glory and the power of God. I'm going to look at our last example. Turn all the way to the end of the book, chapter 12. Starting in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, Paul's strength in the midst of weakness is Christ. And these words are meant to encourage all of us in the room that when we get to that point of being very aware of what is always true, that we are limited and weak as human beings, to accomplish all that God has, when we feel that most acutely, we need to remember that when we are weak, that is when we are actually strong. The revelations that Paul had received were so great, and the experiences of God that he had had were so grand that he says this thorn was given him in the flesh to basically keep him humble, to keep him from boasting in his own strength. We don't know exactly what this thorn was because Paul doesn't go into great detail about it, but I'll just give you a couple options of what it could be. The first thing it could be is some sort of ongoing demonic harassment that Paul was receiving. It could also be opponents that Paul had that would not give up persecuting him and making his life difficult. But many, and it seems most scholars, seem to think that it was probably some sort of physical ailment that Paul had, something chronic that caused ongoing and continually su- continual suffering for Paul. But the exact nature of what that thorn in the flesh was isn't actually important. The point is that something caused Paul great suffering and brought him great weakness. Paul repeatedly asked Jesus to remove that thorn, but the thorn was still with him and evidently would remain with him. Jesus heard those pleas, of course. He heard Paul crying out and he responded to him very clearly, so much so that Paul could say the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. The thorn, the condition that Paul so wanted to get rid of was the very thing that would further attract God's grace to his life and Christ's power To his ministry. Paul's human weakness was a platform for God's strength in his life. As Paul trusted and depended on Christ through his weakness, the power of Christ would rest upon him. He experienced this so tangibly and so completely that he was actually able to say, When I am weak, I am strong. Those are powerful words. So, I want to think for a few minutes here at the end of the sermon about how this might apply, how that truth and how that theme of the strength of weakness might apply in our lives today. First, just a couple clarifying points. This truth does not mean that we are supposed to look for ways to suffer or areas to be weak in or to somehow welcome harm into our lives. Not at all. And this does not mean that we should stop asking God to change difficult, sorrowful, painful circumstances in our lives. That's exactly where Paul started, by asking God to change it. And we should follow his example and continue to ask God. It also doesn't mean that our sorrows and our suffering are somehow no big deal to God. Like, in light of this truth, we shouldn't worry about them that's not true at all god's heart grieves as we suffer as we experience sadness and affliction and pain his heart grieves over it the best example is jesus god in the flesh weeping at his friend's death at his friends weeping at death jesus did that how about this do afflictions in our life mean that god is mad at us We might believe that if we were only better behaved, if we just sinned less, we wouldn't be experiencing this thing, whatever this thing is right now. But that is the very trap that these so-called super apostles had put out for these Corinthians to walk into. They wanted to equate suffering as an indication of God's displeasure. God must not be pleased with Paul, otherwise he wouldn't be going through these afflictions. How in the world could he have God's favor on his life when he is basically driven to the point of despair of life itself? But Paul's life and then Jesus' life of suffering on the cross for us are evidence that is not what's going on. It's true, there are built-in consequences to sin. So when we choose particular sins and we live in them, we do experience it. There's pain in it. But as we go through life, God is not angry at us in Christ, and then bringing pain and suffering into our life as a result. He loves us in Christ. He's with us through sufferings. He's the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies. So when you evaluate tomorrow morning what your day could look like, do so with Christ and his strength as your focus, as your reference point, rather than any real or perceived weakness that you have in your own life your own limitations. Because of Jesus, you now live in the kingdom of God where God is present and the Holy Spirit is moving and Christ is your constant companion along the way. I mentioned earlier about the importance, at least in my life, of moving from an internal monologue over the challenges of life into a dialogue with God. And I would just commend that to you that when you catch yourself doing that internally, move it outward to God and and join another follower of Jesus in praying. I cannot stress it enough how helpful it has been for my own life to do that. Because as disciples of Jesus, we were meant to enjoy a life of living interaction with Jesus as we do our lives. I want to give you an example that I have seen in our church. I've seen lots of examples of the strength of weakness here but this one lately has been really striking me, and it's a dear sister in Christ here. She was born in 1933 and just celebrated her 89th birthday. She's not in this room this morning, but I know she's online worshiping with us. One of my favorite things to talk to her about is her interaction with Jesus. I'll say something like, tell me how you're doing with Jesus lately. And what she shares is a life of continual attachment. To Jesus. One of deep and practical intimacy where she talks with him throughout her day, praying for others, sharing with him all the needs that she experiences as she does life. As she becomes aware of her need for strength, she goes directly to him with a call for help. For example, she asks him to help her get out of her chair, which is not easy for her, to go get a drink of water. Jesus, help me get to this water. Help me get out of this chair. She cannot imagine getting through a day without Jesus being right by her side. Her body may be weaker than it used to be, but in that act, she is strong and powerful in Jesus. She is what should come to mind when we think about a powerful person. She is dependent on him, even to get up and get a glass of water. And as she depends on the all-sufficient strength of Jesus and enjoys his company, she's constantly exemplifying how to do that to me. Every time I visit with her, I am strengthened by her because she points me not to her, but to Jesus who has everything I need all the time. How I can be strong in him. I love it. Church, each one of us this morning is a jar of clay. Each one of us gets to enjoy and display the life-giving power of Jesus to the world around us. Like Jesus and then like Paul, our lives are meant to bring knowledge, true knowledge to people around us of him. While our suffering and our sorrows and our limitations can be unbelievably challenging and painful, we are never left on our own. We are never left without comfort. We are never left without help and hope in the midst of them because the God of all comfort is always with us. None of the challenges that we face in our lives can deter his good purposes from coming to pass in our lives. Nothing. He promises. He is still with us. He is our constant reference point. And Jesus says to each one of us this morning, my grace is is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So when you are weak, then is when you are strong. Let's pray. Father, you are more aware of the reality of what it's like, of how limited we are, and how quickly we can be distracted from you. Lord, I pray that you would work hope in our hearts this morning in places that we have not had hope before. I pray that we would see the weaknesses and challenges not as some sort of punishment from you, but as things we walk through with you right next to us and right inside of us. Would you bring comfort where it is needed in this room this morning? Would you bring mercy to every person in the room who needs mercy? Lord, teach us more today what it means that your grace is sufficient. Help us to know and experience that truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.